Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, how the Northern Territory became the focus of international online extremists. Hello to all conspiracy theorists overseas watching this. Please get a life. I don't want to go into their lies because that just gives them more oxygen and their lies are dangerous. So that's the Northern Territory Chief Minister Michael Gunner at a press conference pushing back against the misinformation and also the violent threats he's had. Yeah, one of the most vicious bits of misinformation is a rumour that the Defence Force were going into remote communities and forcing people to get vaccinated. But it's not just trolls slamming the Northern Territory government's COVID response. Republican Senator Ted Cruz has weighed in and even Russell Brand. One thing you can say about Australia is it's really been good for the Aboriginal people. What's next? What new favours await? So in this episode of The Briefing, how did it come to this? And is this spilling into real-world problems on the ground? And has Michael Gunner unnecessarily fan the flames. If you are anti-mandate, you are absolutely anti-vax. I don't care what your personal vaccination status is. But first to today's headlines. It is December 7. I'm Katrina Blowers. And I'm Tom Tilley. To breaking news, first up, the Biden administration has announced a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics. The Biden administration will not send any diplomatic or official representation to the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics and Paralympic Games, given the PRC's ongoing genocide and crimes against uh, humanity in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses. Yeah, that's the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki there uh, confirming the news that was flagged for a little while mm. now, but they've actually gone ahead with it. Yeah, it's an interesting move. I, I really don't know what it achieves when they're cooperating with China in so many other ways. Just three weeks ago, Biden and Xi Jinping had a three-hour meeting discussing a range mm. of issues in a bid to improve their working relationship. So they're meeting and working with them there at the highest level but not sending officials to the Games, what difference is that going to make? Yeah, and is the Olympics, you know, as China said, is the Olympics the appropriate forum to have that kind of um, protest at a political level? Now, the ball is in Australia's court now. We need to wait and see if we are going to join this diplomatic boycott too. Labor Senator Penny Wong has offered Labor's support if the government wants to go ahead and do that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a very good chance that our leaders will join that diplomatic boycott. Um, fortunately for all the athletes training right now, they'll still be able to compete. Um, I personally know one athlete who's watching this news very closely. You know, they've been planning for this event for years, building their whole yeah. careers around it. And how does it make them feel? Have they have they spoken about that? Um, yeah, they're really worried about it. Like they've been been training and they're like, is, is all this going to come to nothing if, if we announce, you know, a full athletes boycott? And um, it looks like that's not going to be the case. Well, as foreshadowed yesterday on the briefing, Queensland has announced it's going to open its borders to all fully vaxxed travellers four days ahead of schedule. This is going to be a very, very special time of the year. And uh, as a government, we've been very conscious of how important this is to reunite families. That's the Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk announcing the good news yesterday. So the reopening was meant to happen on December 17, but it's been brought forward because you guys hit your 80% double dose vaccination target this week, which is great. And Having a, a family member travelling across that border for Christmas, December 17 was cutting it kind of tight. Mm. So to have a bit of extra breathing room, I think, will be a relief for a lot of people. 
Well, it's also the fact that we had no clue what those new border requirements were going to be. And there are some new ones. So not only do you have to get that uh, negative PCR test result 72 hours before you go across the border, you also have to get another one now five days after you arrive in Queensland. So that's a new requirement. So a lot of testing going to be happening over the Christmas period. Uh, Health authorities are yet to kind of reveal to us how many places are going to be open during that time. So it could be quite Quite tricky to get one. Well, more senior Liberals are calling for Gladys Berejiklian to run for federal parliament, despite the fact the former New South Wales Premier is still under an investigation. If she wished to join our team, she would be very welcome. I think she'd be great. I think, as I've said before, the way uh, that Gladys Berejiklian has been uh, treated over these events, I think, has been shameful. So that's the PM, Scott Morrison, speaking there yesterday. Clearly very keen to have Mm. her on board, Tom. (laughs) Yeah, well, they need these um, inner city seats. So Warringah's an example of a seat that's been won by an independent. It was held by Tony Abbott, the former Prime Mm. Minister, for decades. He lost that seat to Zali Steckel, who's campaigning on climate change as an independent. That's also a threat in a few other seats like Kuyong in Melbourne, which is Josh Frydenberg's seat, Wentworth in Sydney, Dave Sharma's seat. They want these strong, popular Liberal candidates to step forward like Gladys Berejiklian. And this is despite the fact that she's going to have to make this decision to run for this seat before we even get the full findings handed down from the Corruption Commission investigation that still hasn't reported back. I know. So they've extended the period for her to uh, agree or not to pre-selection to January 14. And as you said, we don't know yet when ICAC's going to hand down its findings. Scott Morrison seems to dismiss that, though. He says it's going to have absolutely no bearing. So clearly he knows something that the rest of the world doesn't. Well, the Independent Commission Against Corruption is is something the Liberal Party set up. It's a commission that um, has exposed the shocking crimes of former Labor MPs in New South Wales, two of which ended up serving prison time. So it clearly holds a serious purpose. But in the case of Gladys Berejiklian, he doesn't seem to think it matters. Well, it has happened. Cricket Australia has stripped Perth of the fifth Ashes test, saying the state's border rules have made it just too hard to organise the match. In a statement yesterday, the cricket body said border controls and quarantine requirements in WA and the tight scheduling of the Ashes series meant the match will have to be played elsewhere. So I think the main sticking point is the quarantine, 14 days when they've got to travel from the fourth test in Sydney to get there in Perth. Um, makes it very hard. <laughs> it really does. Uh, Hobart, Melbourne and Canberra are now being touted as the front runners to pick up the final match in the series, which is due to be played from January 14 to 18. Yeah, this is tough news for WA and I think a lot of people there will start to feel that this strict border policy is not really working at this point in the pandemic, especially as mm. South Australia start to live with COVID. And as we'll discuss in a minute, Queensland are opening up on Monday. But I guess in the overall ledger, they've still done very well in WA. They got the AFL final this year. Um, so that yeah. might counterbalance some of the pain of losing what could be a really exciting Ashes. I mean, what if it comes down to the wire and this is the decider? I think it's going to be a lot of pain, especially for WA cricket officials who haven't been able to impact that policy at a higher level. The former Myanmar leader Aung San Suu Kyi has been sentenced to two years jail. A military-controlled court finding Suu Kyi guilty of inciting dissent and breaking COVID rules yesterday. Uh, they say she was out campaigning uh, while wearing a mask and a face shield. She she just waved to people in the crowd. And now this is the first in a series of verdicts that could actually see the former leader jailed for 
100 years. So she was arrested during a military coup in February. And there's a tragic backstory to all of this because the former Nobel Peace Prize winner already spent 15 years locked up until 2010. Then she was released. It was a huge story at the time yeah. because she was you know, very popular in the rest of the world. She'd won a Nobel Peace Prize. Five years after being released, she led her party to an election win. And here we are six years later and she's been locked up in a military coup. Um, this has been condemned by the UN, um, the recent sentencing of, of two years. Here's a spokesperson for UN Human Rights Commissioner um, Michelle Bachelard speaking to the BBC. This kind of a sentence for Aung San Suu Kyi and the continued detention of political opponents, we believe it will only embolden the resistance against the illegitimate rule of the military. So the next bunch of charges she's up on, I think, is for possessing illegal walkie-talkies. So you can kind of see the nature of these charges here. Aussie Sean Turnell has been detained for 10 months. Mm. He's joining Suu Kyi in facing charges of breaching Myanmar's Official Secrets Act. The maximum penalty for that is 14 years in prison, but a verdict isn't expected until sometime next year. Yeah, this is tragic for Sean Turnell and his family. You know, a lot of us have been waiting to see what's going to happen with him. He was a lecturer at my uni, Macquarie Uni, back in the oh, day. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've actually met him before and... Um, he was an economic advisor to Suu Kyi and he's being caught up in this political stoush with the military. All right, right after this message, how the international conspiracy cluster hit the Northern Territory. Katrina, this briefing really comes from the conversation Jan and I had yesterday with Van Batam about the online conspiracy groups. And she told us more about what's been happening in the Northern Territory. And I'd been covering the basics of it about the outbreak in the remote communities and also the really strong vaccine mandates. But I just hadn't quite realised how crazy it's become. And if anybody thinks that we are going to be distracted or intimidated by tinfoil hat wearing tossers sitting in their parents' basements in Florida, then you do not know us Territorians. Tinfoil hat wearing tossers. Yeah. Oh, wow. Look, we're laughing, but it's pretty serious. That's the Northern Territory's Chief Minister Michael Gunner talking about an online campaign that's put his government's COVID response under fire. And his own family um, facing violent threats from people online. Yeah, so on the ground, the territories had weekly anti-mandate protests, which I guess is similar to what's happening in the rest of the country. But this campaign we're talking about today plays on the historical trauma of forced removals during the stolen generation. And it's really played to an international audience, particularly in America. So how did it come to this? Well, two of the key turning points have been the strict vaccine mandate, which was announced last month, one of the strictest in the world, and then there were the COVID outbreaks in several remote Indigenous communities. Now, at the start of the pandemic, there were grave fears that these remote communities would be hit hard by COVID, but mostly they've been spared, Katrina, until last month. The outbreak has reached 60 cases. Not huge, but it is concerning. And the reason for a response that's involved strict lockdowns and increased vaccine rollout and taking some positive cases into isolation at Howard Springs, which some people have even escaped. And so the most extreme theory, as we mentioned before, was that armed soldiers were removing people and forcing people to get vaccinated. Yeah. And this was sparked by a prominent Indigenous woman, June Mills, posting a video where she claimed she'd heard reports it was happening. 
Yeah, she's since said and posted a video that she's received advice that it's not happening. Those allegations have also been widely denounced by Indigenous community organisations, including the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance. Yeah, but it certainly got people's attention given the historical legacy in the territory around forced removal. So let's get a fuller picture of what's going on here with Nicholas Hines. He's a reporter at the ABC in Darwin. Nicholas, thanks for joining us. Tell us more about some of the concerning misinformation that's being spread about the Northern Territory COVID response. One of the most shocking things I've heard is the idea of the Australian military being sent into remote communities, forcing people onto the ground, forcing needles into arms and taking people into what is being described as a concentration camp. To many people's disgust, these basic lies around the involvement of authorities in the the latest response, which has then turned into really strong and visceral death threats against many politicians, but primarily the, the chief minister up here. So is it just online noise? And you're saying there that it hasn't created any real violence, but is it starting to sow genuine disharmony in people's minds? One thing that's been interesting to watch throughout the government's response to this current COVID outbreak is just such a strong health response and a quick health response, but that's been very much happening at the same time as the government's been delivering such a strong pro-vaccine message to the extent that they're very quick to label people anti-vaxxers and very quick to deliver impassioned rants about how the vaccine is the only way forward and that anyone that's not with us is against us and kind of saying he doesn't have respect for anyone who is against the vaccine or is taking part in these protests. When we saw the outbreak start in Catherine and spread into the remote Indigenous communities and then we saw the involvement of health authorities and the military in trying to bring those outbreaks under control, I think there was an understandable almost widespread concern around the fear, obviously, of COVID spreading, but then from people who are against the government, obviously, that comes with a great fear of what the government might be doing. And so we actually saw some Aboriginal elders and groups up here in Darwin kind of spreading that misinformation as well and sharing videos that were spreading the lies that were quickly picked up by you know anti-vaxxers and, and the far right overseas. Let's go back right to the beginning of this story and and how the Northern Territory became the focus of international anti-vax and conspiracy trolls. Where do you think it all started? I first noticed it when the government announced its vaccine mandate. The Territory has one of the widest ranging vaccine mandates in the country. But the strident messages the government started going out with is what really drew the ire of um, anti-vaxxers and people against vaccine mandates around the world, which is when we saw the spat on Twitter between Ted Cruz and Michael Gunner. And I also think politically, Michael Gunner has seen the opportunity to get attention and most of it's positive. There's been very strong and positive reactions to the government's sort of health response to coronavirus. There's only now sadly been one death related to COVID-19 in the territory, but at the same time, sending out a strong message one way has really drawn the, the strong negative reaction in the other. You've got those big players overseas like Ted Cruz and Tucker Carlson on Fox has even been teeing off about Australia's tough vaccine mandates and also our tough COVID restrictions. But we've noticed more like local looking grassroots organisations also weighing into this. There's a group with an Instagram account that's going around called the First Nations Freedom Keepers who say they're raising money for Indigenous communities that have been cut off from essential services because they're not vaccinated. Do you know about this group or other more grassroots groups that appear to be closer to home? 
I think there was a lot of initial concern when the outbreak first spread into the remote communities, but it was pretty quickly dispelled. We had such a strong response from the local Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations up here that it was kind of interesting watching it all play out on social media because it did feel quite disconnected from what was happening on the ground. And it was really Melbourne, Sydney, people far away from the territory that I saw sharing the concerns and fears and calls for the military to be pulled out as opposed to local groups. So would you say on the whole, the respected Indigenous leaders have been supporting the public health measures? Yeah, the the Territory government has actually gained widespread support and congratulation from a lot of groups because of the quick COVID response. Obviously, apart from Western New South Wales, we haven't really seen COVID spread in remote Indigenous communities. And it was a big unknown how it would be possible to handle it when you're dealing with COVID 800 kilometres away from any sort of hospital, let alone adequately staffed and resourced medical services. So we've heard from the Aboriginal community controlled health organisations, we've heard from traditional owners within the communities that have been affected by COVID and largely it has been, yeah, almost surprised at how effective and good the response has been. Talk to us about the controversy around Howard Springs and in particular how that facility is being used to house people from remote Indigenous communities who are feeling isolated and having difficulties being quarantined in that facility. Yeah, I think it's a really tricky one because obviously there's a huge need to isolate any COVID positive people and close contacts to reduce the risk of spread. But when you're dealing with these remote communities that yet are hundreds of kilometres away from major centres that are suffering from years of underfunding, there's major overcrowding that's a you know widely acknowledged issue here in the Territory, it's almost impossible to effectively isolate COVID within a community. So the government has extended this measure, which is the measure it's taken throughout any any outbreak. As soon as there's a positive case, close contacts who can't isolate at home are taken to Howard Springs. That's happened in Darwin. It's happened in Palmerston. It's happened in Catherine. It's also been the government's response in the remote communities. But that's seen dozens of people flown out of the communities like Robinson River, Rock Hole, Lajamanu and Binjari especially, and taken to Howard Springs to isolate. And that is, I think, one of the main points of concern from people down south who hear the news that people are being taken from remote communities and put into a quarantine facility. It it sounds bad on paper, but it's done with the support and in partnership with the Aboriginal controlled health organisations. And then we heard from one Catherine health worker who contracted COVID and was taken to Howard Springs and actually was one of the big names sort of fighting the misinformation on Twitter. He shared a lengthy thread talking about how he has relatives that were part of the stolen generation, how disgusting he thought it was for people to compare what was happening to him to what happened to the stolen generation because, you know, he was watching TV on free Wi-Fi in this nice enough room. He was eating barramundi for dinner and was just having kind of a nice time and understood the the health inputs of it. And how is the vaccine rollout going in remote Indigenous communities and are there big problems with hesitancy? It was a major issue for the Territory for much of this pandemic. The remote vaccine uptake was very slow, but also very starkly different. We had communities in the top end around, you know, East Arnhem that quickly shot up to 80, 90% coverage of people 16 plus. But then down in Central Australia, especially dozens of communities where the vaccine rate just wouldn't push past 20% despite months of work and effort. And one thing that Michael Gunner has repeatedly said is he felt like it's almost the curse of the territory being so effective at keeping COVID out. Mm. It's just sort of a widespread complacency more so than a hesitancy. People 
saw the effectiveness of biosecurity zones where there was not only a territory border, but then also internal borders early last year, which was very effective at, at sort of limiting movement and seen as, according to the government, at least seen as a much more appealing approach from some communities who just said, yeah, lock other people out. We can happily stay here. We don't need the vaccine. But on the whole, the uptake wasn't terrible. It was certainly far below what was necessary in terms of a public health measure until, yeah, this outbreak began and you saw basically every community that was affected by COVID, it immediately shot up to 90, 95%. And more broadly now, there is some movement. So there are still dozens of communities where the rate is too low, but it does finally seem to be climbing. So let's sum it all up. Are you really worried about this misinformation? Do you reckon it's going to get more ugly and spill over into the real world on the ground? Or do you think it'll calm down now while authorities get on with the job? One point of concern I would have is when the Territory's borders do open later this month when we remove quarantine requirements because that's when we will start seeing the regular cases and we'll see the regular public health response and that's when I think I would expect there to be far greater concern about the territory's you know sort of response I think so far it's felt very external COVID itself has felt external and then this misinformation has also felt quite external but I think when the territory does open up and we see a situation like in South Australia where the cases do start coming in that will be quite shocking and a very new and tricky thing for the government to deal with, especially if there are remote communities that still have low vaccine rates that will still need strong and fast health responses in the event of an outbreak to avoid widespread transmission. And that's when I think there might be real world impacts. But when you look at the fact that according to the Territory Government, we've hit a vaccine rate of 95% first dose coverage, it is a minority of people, I guess. You know, most people are just getting on with it, living their lives as best they can. That was Nicholas Hines, ABC reporter in Darwin. Katrina, I feel like Michael Gunner in some ways, I get that he was really concerned about remote Indigenous communities. I get the strong measures, but I think some of the rhetoric has actually made this problem bigger than it needed to be. Yeah, but on the other hand, you've got to shut this stuff down and take a hard line against it. You can't be wishy-washy about it at all. I kind of respect him for taking Mm. the approach that he has. Well, he's certainly delivered some very strong lines. (laughs) (laughs) So speechwriters, or or he's he's kind of nailing it. But to come out and say that being anti-mandate is the same as being anti-vax, I personally don't think that's true. Like, there is some correlation between those two, but to say one equals the other really inflames what's a really sensitive issue. Listener.